Welcome to OBEHAVE, the behavioral science podcast from Ogilvy Change. One of the first things I noticed when I first discovered behavioral science was that when I gave talks about marketing and advertising, I got invited to marketing and advertising conferences. When I started talking about behavioral economics, I got invited to 10 Downing Street. Hi, I'm Julia. And I'm Maddie. And we're behavioral researchers at Ogilvy Change and co-hosts of this podcast. On today's episode, we're talking about unseen opportunities and innovation. And we thought, who better to talk to on episode one of our brand new podcast than the founder of Ogilvy Change and vice chairman of Ogilvy and May the Group UK, Rory Sutherland. Ogilvy Change has been evolving a lot recently, so we brought it back to the beginning and asked him why he introduced behavioral science to marketing. I suppose my fascination with behavioral economics started long before I knew it was called behavioral economics, and perhaps even before anybody called it behavioral economics. But I was always convinced there was a kind of as yet unnamed science around the peculiarities of human behavior from the time when I started work in advertising and marketing in what was then called Ogilvy May the Direct, now known as Ogilvy One, which was a direct marketing agency. And the great thing about a direct marketing agency is David Ogilvy advised everybody starting in advertising should spend several years in a direct marketing agency first, is that you get feedback, you get results, you test different things. And um, the AB split test, in fact, uh, was pioneered in advertising by direct marketers uh, the randomized control trial, to some extent, was pioneered by direct marketers long before it was practiced in either medicine or the social sciences. So um, it's, to some extent, advertising's gift to humanity. But um, what would happen is that you would get dramatically different results, often occasioned by things which were, in conventional economic terms, trivial. So, you know, the size of the photograph of the product would have a totally disproportionate effect, perhaps, on uh, whether people would take up an American Express card or not. Um, Tiny little details uh, would um, uh, sometimes uh, have absolutely enormous effects. I mean, you know, really, really small differences of format um, or things which to any rational person would seem to be more or less irrelevant or even unnoticed would affect the results. So that was one thing, that small things could have large effects. The other thing was that the results were often counterintuitive. So sometimes, for example, the best way to sell a product would be to write a lot about it. And other times, when you're selling a product, the best thing you could do is actually write very little about it. Now, that sounds strange. Why would people be more content to buy a product knowing less about it? And the psychological explanation I came up with for that was that it was a kind of financial insurance product. If you wrote three pages about it, Signing that coupon at the bottom felt like a big deal. It wasn't a big deal product. It simply meant that every time you flew by a scheduled flight, you'd be charged $2 extra and get another $100,000 of flight insurance. It was actually no big deal as a product. Writing three pages about all of this and about a subject which people don't really care to read about at length, like their own death in a heap of mangled metal is not generally <laughs> something people like to dwell on too heavily. Um, the best thing you can do is just write two paragraphs and make it no big deal. If you want this, take here out. And so those, I think, are the really, really big lessons uh, that 
I was carried with me, and I always thought there was a missing science. There was a discipline here which deserved really weighty study, and as far as I knew, there was no name for it. And the, I suppose the lessons which remain, I suppose, sort of central principles of Ogilvy change are these. Small things can have very, very large effects. The human brain has not evolved to have a sense of proportion. And the reason for that is we've evolved sometimes to attach very great importance to very small cues because we're not, we haven't evolved to live in a, an environment of perfect information or perfect trust. And so sometimes just a tiny bit of indicative information, one way or the other, can affect our behaviour to a very great degree. Second thing is sometimes, you know, it's good to test counterintuitive things. And I often say test counterintuitive things because your competitors won't. It's a much more valuable discovery when you discover something counterintuitive than when you confirm something obvious. I talk about those five things, you know, test the counterintuitive, small things have big effects. We had these various mantras. And what it came, up, came down to is there's something even more important beneath all that, which is because people assume that only big things have big effects, when they look to explain human behaviour, economists particularly guilty of this, they look to big things, to major incentives, not to small environmental cues. So they're not looking for the small things to have a big effect. By definition, they're not looking for the counterintuitive things because they're counterintuitive. And so rather brilliantly, I think it was a group of people, not me, boiled this down into un the idea of unseen opportunities. That we're the part of an advertising agency that in a way goes into a business and writes our own brief. And the reason is because the problems we aspire to solve haven't even been spotted as problems. Because they're the product of, you know, butterfly effects on the one, on the one side, of you know, remarkably trivial little details which have a huge effect on behaviour. And they're also the product often of counterintuitive logic. Putting the price up sometimes increases demand, for example. Now, economists start spitting tax when I say this. The fact remains, it is quite often. It's, 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 it's untrue more often than it's true, but it's true often enough to be of interest to any intelligent business person. And there are loads of examples of how unseen opportunities have been leveraged in the real world for effective behavior change. And we asked Rory to mention one of his favorites. Value is highly subjective, and whether something is good or bad depends on how you look at it. It's in Hamlet. Uh, nothing is either good nor bad, but only thinking makes it so. And that to a great extent, um, that's true of products. The same product can, you know, or the same product attribute can seem highly desirable or unpleasant, depending on the frame in which it's placed. Now, this goes back to one of the early doyens of direct response advertising, a man called James Webb Young, who was for a time the creative director of J. Walter Thompson in Chicago, retired to an apple farm just south of New Mexico, uh, just south of Santa Fe in New Mexico. I visited the apple farm, in fact, because he donated it after his death to the University of New Mexico. And he had these several hundred acres of orchards, which he hoped to make his retirement income, only to discover that at high altitude, which is New, a large part of New Mexico, northern New Mexico is at quite high altitude, it's the sort of southern bit of the Rockies, um, hailstones would come down and pummel these apples, so they looked almost like golf balls. They were pitted on the outside. And apple merchants weren't interested in trying to sell them because you'd have to come up with this whole spiel to explain why they looked so weird. And the natural reaction of the consumer looking at them was they were substandard apples because they weren't beautifully round and smooth. 
And being a good advertising man, what James Webb Young did is he sold the apples at a premium by mail order and turned the pits, which he called dimples, into a kind of unique selling proposition. The proof of the apples' extraordinarily high-altitude provenance was the fact that actually they were, in his immortal phrase, not pitted by hailstones, but dimpled by the heavens. And the very same thing, Kenneth very successfully sold them as a kind of conversation piece, and it was actually, he turned what was a basic failing into a product proof point. Only apples grown at high altitude will manifest this uh, remarkable uh, external feature. And so once you realise that, everything changes, really, that the value of something is not, uh, you know, simply a question of, you know, stable, transitive preferences or whatever it is, that actually you can create and synthesise value out of nowhere just by telling a different story about something. I think that's a really nice example of identifying an opportunity to take a negative and reframing it positively to give it consumer appeal. Supermarkets have actually applied this principle on a much wider scale by taking hard-to-sell imperfect fruit from the main shelves and repackaging it in plastic cups as ready-to-mix smoothies. Yeah, that's a really nice use of default by the supermarkets. For my example, I wanted to find 2016's answer to the urinal fly. So most of you are probably quite familiar with this. Uh, in Amsterdam's airport, they stuck decal flies to the sweet spot at the bottom of urinals to reduce spillage. Uh, my example actually does involve both urine and stickers, but in a rather more serious context. Uh, we know, unfortunately, that domestic violence is much more likely to start during pregnancy. And the staff at a London hospital for pregnant women developed a really clever way to deliver necessary information about domestic violence to vulnerable women. So this is a situation that is, one, hard to talk about, and two, often needs a discreet means of communication. So the solution was actually to provide red sticker dots in the washrooms with a note that if you are in need of help regarding domestic violence, place a sticker on the bottom of your urine sample cup, and this will indicate to staff that you would like to receive some communication and help. Basically, what Unseen Opportunities are all about is innovation. And what we're particularly interested in is how can we use behavioral science to move the innovation agenda forward. The flip side of that is actually understanding what not to do. So we asked Roy, what are the biggest mistakes made in innovation today? Marketing is innovation. Um, there are two ways you can create new economic value that's significantly new and interesting, other than the boring way of just making the same thing slightly more efficiently. You can find out what people want and work out a way to make it for them, or you can find out what you can make and work out a way to make people want it more. And there is no useful economic distinction between those two forms of value creation. Now, innovation is only innovation. And to this, I, I, I refer you to a brilliant quote by, I think, a man called Stuart Butterfield, who is the founder of Slack. And he says the only really useful definition or, or metric for how, how successful an innovation is how meaningful an innovation is, is the extent to which it changes behaviour. No trivial innovation has, has changed behaviour a lot, and no major innovation has changed behaviour only a little. And he says it's, you know, he always treats it as axiomatic. Now, what that means is that something that looks really clever, but which doesn't change the way people behave, or doesn't actually... Um, Encourage or a brilliant idea that merely doesn't get adopted because nobody can work out why, why they want it. That's not an innovation, that's an invention. 
And so the first thing to do is to treat innovation and marketing as inseparable activities, I would argue. Um, because actually, at the very most, they're two sides of the same coin. And I mean, you know, I, th I think there are cases of extraordinary inventions which have gone nowhere because they haven't been marketed in the right way, video conferencing being one. I still think there's an opportunity to make it go big. I don't know how. Um, you know, now, you know, uh, probably the way to do it is to combine it with home working, in that I think I could have a reasonable meeting with people at home, with six other people, if I could just beam them up on my telly. Um, the mistake was that offices made it seem like the poor man's alternative to air travel, not the rich man's alternative to a phone call. And so it was sold as the inferior substitute, the methadone to the heroin of, of air travel, rather than being sold as an upgrade to a telephone call. And as a result, I think it, was, uh, it, it, it became a poorer by the comparison. I, what I like is I take, I'd like to take that Butterfield idea and make it more widely known. Because I think it has major implications for the way that transport policy works. So at the moment, the way in which transport investment and infrastructure investment is justified is by time saving. And they put a sort of cash value on people's time. And they assume that getting people A to B 20 minutes faster is worth for the average person X pence per minute. And they justify the investment on, on that score. Now, one, it's rubbish because uh, I would argue that in many cases there are a lot of train journeys which I prefer to be 10 minutes longer because a really good two-hour train journey with Wi-Fi is about as productive as you'll ever be in life. Okay. The second thing is it makes it very, very hard to justify infrastructure investment uh, for the simple reason that um, uh, it's hard in many cases to massively reduce journey time. You know, I mean, there's a... Yes, you can make planes go supersonic, but the amount of additional en energy required to reduce air travel times, unless they come up with a scramjet or something, the amount of money required to make planes go at Concorde speed, the amount of energy required is just disproportionate. So the better way to justify infrastructure investment isn't to assume that people know where they want to go and we'll help them get there faster. It's to say really valuable infrastructure actually changes behaviour, gets people to make journeys they wouldn't otherwise have made. Now there, what's interesting is that I think two things happen. One, it means that maybe things like the overground are actually hugely important. It wasn't a very expensive project by the scheme of things. But suddenly people want to live in Peckham because it's handy for Shoreditch. Now that was a sentence that eight years ago no one would have uttered. Now, most of the overground, the second thing that I think it implies is that infrastructure investment should be accompanied by, if, if you measure uh, the success of an innovation by behavior change, so you have a human metric, which is, do people do things differently as a result of this intervention? It means that the amount of money you should perhaps spend on marketing new infrastructure should be much, much higher as a proportion of the cost of the infrastructure. I would argue that most of the overground was not an infrastructure success, it was a marketing success. They renamed it the overground and they put it on the tube map. So suddenly this railway network, which had always existed, it was called things like Silverlink Metro and whatever it was, 
This railway network, which had always existed, suddenly became salient to people, and they suddenly realised that they didn't have to go through central London to get from Peckham to Shoreditch. And it caused a lot of people to suddenly live in places, to commute to places, to open offices, to, to establish homes in places they wouldn't previously have considered. Now, when you look at that, the, the, your job is to create, is to increase the sum of human possibilities. Marketing has a much bigger role to play because now what you're doing is actually making people comfortable with new behaviours. Not just providing the infrastructure for the behaviours that people knew they wanted to adopt anyway. It's actually providing the mental infrastructure that makes them comfortable adopting that behavior at all. And so I, I think there's a really, really interesting question uh, in terms of how we invest in transport, which is that um, telling people what they can do should be almost as much a focus uh, of, of new investment, information and promotion. It's an interesting question. If you define success not as saying we'll wait for someone to want a journey and make that journey as easy as possible. Instead, what we want to do is to actually increase the sum of possible behaviours in people's minds. Mm -hmm. Then actually marketing, you suddenly look at marketing in a different light. That it's, it, 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 it's not something distinct from the physical reality. It's actually as much part of the solution as, as new physical infrastructure is. So that's the end of episode one. Big thank you to Rory Sutherland for featuring on our first ever episode of Obehave and sharing his fascinating thoughts on unseen opportunities and innovation. If you enjoyed it, please check out our blog at obehave.tumblr.com. That's o-b-e-h-a-v-e.tumblr.com. For those of you familiar with the original Obehave newsletter, we've moved the articles online and will continue to post about the latest research and insight from the field. You can also follow us on Twitter at Ogilvy Change and like us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Ogilvy Change. We want to extend a huge thank you to our sponsor, Sound Lounge, enabling advertisers to use music in more powerful ways. Special thanks to Ruth Simmons for introducing us to the world of sound branding and Julian Goodkind for managing the music origination and production for this show. Thanks for listening.